House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the interview part of the show. Um, today, is joining us, um, as we mentioned in the intro, we have the author of uh, Tinderbox, and that's uh, Robert Fiesler. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Happy to be here, Alan. Um, Robert, um, what, first of all, what drew you to this story um, that you wrote in Tinderbox? Well, um, I've, I'd long been obsessed with New Orleans, um, and I'd also long been obsessed with reporting, because I'm a journalist by trade, um, subculture stories, which tend to be about marginalized groups and it tends when you when you're a subculture reporter too you end up feeling like you're telling forgotten histories or alternative histories where something happens to a group nobody looks about and then for whatever reason everyone agrees to say that it did not and you're trying to um in the present context or in a past context um unravel that so as to tell a more honest and full uh depiction of the american story and so i i uh i i i delved into several different subculture stories about marginalized communities, but for whatever reason, um, I had never delved into a story about um, a queer society, um, which is odd because I am a gay man, um, and I am like a, I'm a pretty outspokenly uh, queer person, and, and I, uh, I, I, don't, I, I couldn't understand why. I think I was avoiding it. Um, perhaps I was scared. I, perhaps I thought that maybe I couldn't... Um, I wouldn't get it right. Perhaps I, I knew I would be delving into some aspects of my own history and my own closeted past if I delved into anything where um, queer society existed in, in a secret, clandestine subculture in the United States. So I, um, I, the story happened upon me. Actually, I was I was researching other different kind of subcultures. I, at one point, I researched paranormal investigators, um, certain homeless oh, no. societies in New York City, and things like that. And then um, this story sort of found me at the right time, strangely enough. I, um, it was introduced to me, or I was initiated by a professor at my journalism school in New York City who originally was from New Orleans and who'd been a baby reporter in the French Quarter in 1973 when this fire occurred. Um, he asked me if I'd ever heard about this fire at a bar called the Upstairs Lounge. I let him know I hadn't. Um, and then he said, it, oh, yeah, it was the, you know, deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history, and it was completely swept under the rug. More than several dozen people died. Mm -hmm. that, that's all I could tell you about it. And I'm like, what do you mean that's all you can tell me? I, I, I'd like to know more. Um, and for some reason, he kept saying, I, I don't know why. It's just, it's too hazy. I can't explain why I don't know this event. Um, and this was a, you know, this is a professional level investigative journalist whose who's grasp of facts um, was astounding. And also he's talking about his hometown and something that he reported around when he was a baby reporter. But for whatever reason, he couldn't, he couldn't quite hit on it. Um, and so I, I became obsessed. I fell down. What, 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 what most subculture reporters do is I fell down like an Alice in Wonderland type, type rabbit's hole. And I, I started researching the upstairs lounge. Um, and then I, um, I, I sort of just bought a plane ticket to New Orleans on a whim and decided to fly down here um, and I stayed in the wisteria-scented sunroom of the, the only two people I knew in town and started researching through archives and also eventually through interviews um, this very important lost event that had happened in this really unique 
important uh, American city that in some ways also is a uh, kind of like a foreign country in U.S. soil. So in the process of um, being down here and learning about the upstairs lounge and learning about New Orleans queer culture, I was at the same time falling in love with New Orleans um, as a mystical city and as a as a, a creative place that has the capacity to get into, you know, a writer or an artist's pores <laughs> pretty deeply. Mm -hmm. um, eventually I found a place to, to publish this book, which turned into Tinderbox. Um, and then um, when the book published, my husband and I decided we're going to move down to New Orleans and we're going to start a life down here, which is what we did. Wow. Um, what do you think it is um, with... Um, let's say, reporting and journalism. Um, when we look at even today's kind of current event with the um, coronavirus and how um, I see that there's, um, you know, it's reached 100,000 people um, and it's headline page in the New York Times. And I see a report how um, back during the AIDS crisis when it extended to 100,000 deaths, it was third page news. Um, mm. Now, so is that kind of? You think it's because we're talking subculture? Is it because it's a minority group? It's because it, we're talking about gay people that are dead rather than the general population? And it, do you think mm -hmm. that still goes today? Well, in the past, I'll answer in the past. Um, the the way it's tended to work is that viewing any topic of of queer life or homosexuality or gay life in, in the past, especially the 1970s, 1960s, 1950s, um, you can't look at it and try to understand societal reaction to it without sort of resurrecting in your own mind the tw and, and, and the realities of the 20th century closet, which was mm -hmm. um, a sociological and psychological prison uh, in which a specific group was even denied uh, gay folk and lesbians were denied even minority status and told that they didn't exist by various constituencies. Um, the law said, uh, which had made homosexuality illegal, um, called gay folk a crim criminal. Um, pastors and preachers um, called queer folk spiritual aberrations or sinners. Um, and the scientific and medical establishment had a wide... Uh, body of research at that point, which turns out wasn't very good, but at, at that point, um, which verified that um, gay folk were, were sexual psychopaths. So um, when you exist in a society uh, that's almost like a different America from the one that we live, live in today, um, in order to, when you delve into that past, you, you under, start to understand in a deep context how um, many people who lived uh, who identified as gay uh, li were uh, lived in a context where they were um, isolated, um, existing in a dark corner of society, um, and, and hid hid their true selves from a world that was going to uh, they believed was going to harm them. And by all by all by all stretches of um, uh, research I've found, actually would harm them if they publicly proclaimed their private secret. Um, and so when you when you place that context upon an, a, a tragic or emergency event like the upstairs lounge fire, which occurred in New Orleans on um, 
the last Sunday of June, which was then the beginnings of Pride Month as they were developing around the country, although that was unknown in New Orleans because New Orleans was a very heavily closeted city at that point. Um, on the night of June 24, 1973, you, you see what happens in, in a society where um, there is an emergency moment uh, which is which in French Quarter terms, because that's a tiny, it's a, it's a tinier neighborhood of of two three story buildings. It felt like a cataclysmic event um, where there were 32 people that died, um, and there was an, an immediate and sudden sense of shock uh, for all that that massive scope of carnage that was wrought uh, by fire upon human bodies. And then you, you saw you saw almost immediately afterwards, um, as you were hinting and as you were talking about, um, the immediate societal consequences of people finding out the character, the nature of the bar that burned, and the character of the people who burned within it. They found out that New Orleanians were finding out that this was a gay bar, shock, uh, in a city that had found a way to deny, um, at least publicly, um, the fact that homosexuality existed in their own very uh, in their own culture by um, dancing around it with euphemism for decades, if not centuries, that that wouldn't be a gay man. That's an eligible bachelor, right? Those, <laughs> right? Those aren't. Yeah. That, that's not a that's not a lesbian, right? Or those aren't two lesbians. Those are spinsters living together. Um, oh, if only they could just find husbands. That kind of thing. Um, those two men that lived on the street are longtime companions, um, but they're certainly not. Um, they're, they're, if the immediate notion that, in almost the instant, if you if you declared that that was a gay person or that those two men were living a homosexual lifestyle, that span in time, law enforcement and various aspects of formal and, and informal social justice would click into place and suddenly place that individual's life in danger. Um, that teacher would be at risk immediately being fired. There were no employment protections. Um, churches would expel members. Um, a pers- uh, gay men in the 1970s and 1960s, especially at various points in time, when you would meet queer folk from that era, um, most of them at one point had been married or were married with children because there was a belief that, um, uh, especially for a long span of time, that the um, the sacrament of marriage and the intercession of the divine would cure you of your secret burden um, and, and and magically make you straight, uh, which unfortunately, it, as the result, you know, it, you would see from the number of divorces was not true and that was not the case. But so um, so these men were living at great uh, at great risk of expressing themselves in this way. Um, and so when a bar like the upstairs lounge burned, there was shock. That from a city that was forced to acknowledge that this type of bar existed, although there were <gasps> yes, there were actually 25 such bars existing in the French Quarter at that time period. There was a, such a large uh, queer population in, in New Orleans in the 70s. It was, it was called the, the queer capital of the South. Um, but they were forced to openly acknowledge what had 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 then up to then um, been an open secret. Um, and so it created a lot of shock to the system. It created a lot of, um, it shook loose a lot of bias against the victims themselves. And so um, the media um, would, for example, be very uncomfortable about no about how to co- not knowing how to cover this type of events. Um, for example, um, in the front page headline of, of the Times Picayune, uh, the day after the Monday, uh, the day after uh, the upstairs lounge fire, which took place on a Sunday. 
in the front page article, no mention of homosexuality was made. And that was intentional. And then you would see the reaction of police in the immediacy of this emergency moment where they're trying to corral crowds away from the fire as it's ongoing, try to provide care for the survivors of this tragedy. You saw what would happen where there's a police force who had been trained to believe that a certain subpopulation of New Orleans were criminal, were of a criminal element, were dangerous to society. Well, then that would naturally create a level of animosity, to say the least, about how they would handle this moment where people would normally, in any kind of fire, let's say a train crash or something like that, people normally muster up a great amount of sympathy for other human beings. There tends to be a lot of heroism that builds out of such dramatic moments, much less so in the case of the upstairs lounge fire, because this involved a scandalous type of bar that burned in which many people were believed to be conspiring in criminal behavior. And many individuals thus did not grieve the deaths of the gay men who died terrible deaths, really one of the worst kinds of deaths you could die imaginable, burning alive in a bar of that type. Listening to your book, too, I also get the feeling that you kind of suggest, I believe, that this is sort of the reason why they never really solved or prosecuted anybody, is what I should say, prosecuted anybody for the murders and the burning of the bar. Yeah. I mean, you have to think in the era of that time, if you were to transplant yourself into that space, where the greatest social context probably the average American had about homosexual life was the rape scene in the movie Deliverance. When you understand homosexuality from that violent lens, you'll understand that the city of New Orleans, which was increasingly dependent on the tourist dollar, still is, tourism is the major industry in New Orleans now, would perceive an event like the Upstairs Lounge, in which a bar on the seamy border of the French Quarter had burned, right, and people had died inside of it. Just stop right there. That already is bad press for a town that's trying to draw tourists and business conventioneers in for consequences-free weekends and conventions and things like that. And then from there to understand that this was a gay bar, which would obviously throw up in the faces of New Orleanians before they were ready to deal with it, the reality that there was a large, clandestine, secretive queer population living side by side and contributing to New Orleans society. And then from there, once you delve into the police investigation, you'll find that in all likelihood, as you were talking about, there was a bounty of evidence that pointed towards a chief suspect, a gentleman named Roger Dale Nunez, who was an internally conflicted gay-for-pay hustler, who was known to many of the Upstairs Lounge victims and survivors on the street where the Upstairs Lounge was located, a street called Iberville Street. And so that adds this additional layer of complexity that confounded officers and confounded city officials to the degree where you could understand why there wasn't exactly a lot of motivation 
to solve this crime. And it's not like the public was shaking down the doors so that people would say, who did this terrible thing? Somebody please solve it. We need answers. No, I mean, it was so... The notion that it was a gay bar that had burned. Most of the people who died um, were not heterosexual. We're not living... We're not... uh, Living, we're not identifying a straight lifestyle, and that the fire was likely, in all cases, gay on gay crime. It was too complex, too nuanced for a society like that um, to process. So you could understand why uh, an investigation uh, for the upstairs lounge, why there wouldn't be uh, an incredible amount of pressure. Uh, placed on the police to, to, to tie this up with an answer that satisfied everyone because the public, by and large, was not grieving um, this event. They weren't processing this event. They wanted it to disappear as quickly as possible, which is a large re- – when you, when you look at it from that angle, you'd understand why the upstairs lounge fire happened in June of 1973, and then the police investigation closed – without the police invest, uh, questioning the chief suspect ever. Roger Dillinguez was still alive at that point. Um, it closed in August of 1973 without any answers, and the police report itself, in, 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 in the documentation of it, I was shocked to find it, the police refused to even say that the fire was intentionally set, right? Even though in the same report, they note that the fire was started with the aid of lighter fluid and a spark <laughs> in the front staircase. Um, which sounds like um, sounds like human action to me. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of contradictions and, and con- a confounded level of blurriness that sort of is draped over this entire event, which kind of lends it an air of mystery, even to this day. I think when we talk about some of the people that were um, in the in the bar at the time, uh, there was a Reverend Bill Larson that you mm-hmm. uh, talk about throughout, and another guy, a Pastor George Mitchell, I believe. So, didn't didn't the police or the neighborhood sort of have um, questions of why uh, people um, of the cloth, so to speak, were in a gay bar? Probably initially they did until they found out that the kind of church that uh, Bill Larson and George Mitch, uh, Dwayne George Mitch Mitchell were part of, which was called, this was a radical gay affirming church called the Metropolitan Community Church, which had actually been founded by a man uh, named Troy Perry in uh, Los Angeles in 1968. Um, in, in, in between 68 and 73, it had sort of spread around the country with various missions and churches opening up um, and queer-friendly ministers serving a predominantly gay um, flock um, with, a, with a positive message about a gay accepting Jesus Christ. Um, so this was, not a, a, this was not a church that had been accepted by very many other Christian church bodies, uh, needless to say. And Troy Perry, the founding pastor, was at that point um, considered a religious radical. Um, and really, he was one probably the most visible an outspoken homosexual in the world at a time when that was not it was not popular to be so. Um, he was one of the few uh, gay Americans who would insist upon um, his his face being shown in news articles and his real name being used when he quote when he was quoted, um, which was very unique for the time period and upset and rankled a lot of people. So. The, by 73, the, uh, there was a, a Metropolitan Community Church branch 
um, in New Orleans, and Bill Pastor, uh, sorry, Bill Larson was the um, the interim pastor serving there at that point. Um, he was an incredibly well respected man. He's known as kind of a fatherly sort of of, of uh, person, and he uh, he had actually led a religious service for many of the upstairs lounge uh, bar victims at that point um, earlier that Sunday uh, in June on June 24th. Um, afterwards, uh, after the religious service was over, um, evidently the, uh, something special had happened in that in that service. This was um, the Metropolitan Community Church and also Bill Larson. Most of the upstairs lounge uh, patrons and regulars at various points um, were, uh, were were of a working class background. It should be noted these were not people of 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 financial or political means, um, and so uh, at that service. Um, there had been a sort of hubbub because everyone was excited, at, um, and the church service didn't happen in the upstairs lounge bar, but it ha- happened actually in a in a in a residence, like a, a private house that had been converted into a church um, in the Garden District, which is sort of a couple neighborhoods away from the upstairs lounge bar. Um, but there had been, and someone had donated an air conditioner. Um, to the flock, which is in the summer in New Orleans, if you're sitting in a building trying to sing religious songs and it's sweaty as hell and it's humid as hell, I mean, forget mm-hmm. it, right? Just the human aromas alone can be unbearable. So these people were, were these, these, these queer folk were at, at the, um, with the MCC were excited that someone had anonymously donated a air conditioner and they thought that was right cause to celebrate. I mean, in New Orleans, parties can happen at the drop of a hat. And the donation of an air conditioner is as good a reason as any. So the church folk agreed to regather later that night at the upstairs lounge, which um, the MCC of New Orleans Church and the upstairs lounge bar sort of had a, a longstanding um, f- affinity relationship together. For once, the, the, ups, the MCC of New Orleans had been sort of a roving flock. They were holding services for about, about three years or so. Uh, and they would hold services in apartments until up until uh, they were either evicted from that place or um, for whatever reason they'd have to pick up and move and wander around town. It wasn't exactly they were like a stable congregation. So at a certain point, um, Phyllis Stevie, the owner of the upstairs lounge, allowed them to hold their religious services in the back theater hall uh, for about a certain span of months in 1972. Um, and they had actually held church then in this gay bar. Um, which which was which served as a kind of uh, community gathering place more than like a more than just a gay bar. The upstairs lounge was a a sort of uh, magical spot where a lot of different sort of events or different things could happen. Especially magical, I should say, for the people who considered it an, an oasis and a haven. It was sort of like a gay version of Cheers, um, where a lot of gay couples would gather. There'd be gay religious folk. Amongst each other, there would be a white baby grand piano in the corner that they would be crooning on ditties together, singing songs because it's gay folk together around a piano. Guess what they're singing? Show tunes. I mean, so they, this was, this was, that's the sort of character of the spot. And on, but on the night of June 24th, they'd all decided to gather. They were excited about the, the donation of this air conditioner. They decided to gather um at the upstairs lounge that night on Sunday, specifically because Sunday was the best night of the week at the upstairs lounge. It was drink special night, right? It's called the beer bust. One dollar for two hours of unlimited draft beer plus a returnable 50 cent deposit for the pitcher. I mean, this was New Orleans in the 70s. These men could up if they wanted to. So they were gathering for, for a, a certain kind of rosy-cheeked fellowship, um, 
in and amongst their, each other. And Bill Larson, of course, was a man of New Orleans. He knew how to have fun. And he was a man who would celebrate in and amongst his flock. And Deacon Dwayne George Mitch Mitchell, as you said, was the, um, he was the, he was the deacon. He was the sort of an assistant pastor. He was a burly, um, I don't think it's insulting to say kind of a, a heavy set, uh, man who was, um, widely known to be, I guess now he would be called a bear. Uh, but those, I, those, uh, which is the gay terminology for a fluffy, um, hairy, larger man whose girth is part of his sexual allure, I guess. But in this early, in the early seventies, um, that the term bear didn't really exist. All the gay, all the gay archetypes didn't exist in this certain febrile queer culture at that point. Where like, um, Essentially, gay men in the early 1970s could most of them could display a range of hyper feminine or to hyper masculine characteristics that they could turn on a dial that they'd learn to do so to survive in all the various situations that they would have to survive and hide or be open in as the situation deemed. Um, so that night, um, Bill Larson was in, in the upstairs lounge um, at the it was like a. 7:53, when the fire uh, was first lit in the front staircase to the bar, which had served as the lone entrance and exit to the second-story establishment that was almost sort of, a, uh, it sort of like loomed over the intersection of Iberville and Charter Street, almost like a castle keep. And you could pass by the upstairs lounge in most any direction and not even know that there was this massive gay bar there. Um, and Bill Larson was one of the... Um, the victims of of the ended up of the fire itself once um once at 756 when uh when the front fire door uh, from the staircase landing opened up and flames exploded into the room as if shot from a flamethrower um bill larson was one of the individuals um whose lives was claimed and sadly um his life specific his life was claimed so publicly so he made it to the far windows of the bar um as fire was surging across um this uh, the, where uh, the, uh, surging across the bar itself, I get a little emotional when I talk about this. But um, he made it to the far window. He was able to uh, be one of the individuals that helped break down, uh, break the glass of the far windows. Um, and when they broke the glass um, on that night, they found that the, the um, behind the glass were window bars that had been left there uh, um, in, as a feature approved by fire safety inspectors but that effectively penned them into the bar inside the upstairs lounge as if it was a prison. Um, and Bill Larson was able to angle his way slightly um, as fire was burning up uh, his body, angle his way slightly through the window bars up to the point where he became trapped in the windowsill. And then, um, and then fire claimed him there with half of his body hanging out and the public was, uh, you know, hundreds of spectators were gaping and gawking. Um, as he screamed his last words, I, I can't, you can't make this stuff up. He's, his last words that he screamed were, oh, God, no. Um, and then fire claimed his life. Um, and then his body was left there. Even after the fire was put out, the fire was extinguished in less than 20 minutes. His body was left there for more than four hours where he became a public spectacle for onlookers and for members of the media who photographed uh, his, his corpse. Um, and spread those images nationally and internationally alongside news stories of this terrible fire to strike near the French Quarter. 
You must have spent an amazing amount of time. Um, I can't believe the detail of a lot of the victims and, and their relationships and what was going on before and up to the time that you put in the book. How, how was that to research and how was that to talk to people and get involved uh, to find out so much um, about that day so long ago? Um, well, at first it was incredibly intimidating and I also as, as a journalist and as a human being I felt bad that I was contacting most of these men uh, who were survivors of the fire, many of whom were friends with people who died within the building. Um, and I was asking them to revisit the worst day of their life, a moment that they, from which they would, they would define as before and after. Um, and I was asking them to rehash um, memories that were very difficult for them to articulate uh, because it's, uh, they're describing things that almost sound unreal. Uh, to the average person. I mean, we're not a society that uh, most of us haven't been experienced war combat. We're not used to gore. We don't understand how fragile a human body is. We don't understand what can happen in a small span of time um, when you introduce fire into an enclosed space. Um, and so it was, um, it was very difficult. And it would oftentimes take... Uh, some upstairs lounge survivors, such as a, a gentleman named Ricky Everett, had it felt like had processed this event, um, either through therapy or through religious counseling, etc., where part of his recovery process, I think, is telling and retelling his story about what happened to him. And actually, Ricky Everett was the best friend of, of Bill Larson, the pastor who died in the windowsill. Um, and um, speaking to Ricky... Uh, was less, um, it felt less like I, often as a journalist, it feels like sometimes you're angling around uh, the story or angling along, around the light, and you're almost like a, a, a safe breaker where you're trying to pose the right question in the right order of words that will become the combination that unlocks, that unlocks the safe and gets, gets you to the point of the material you need to get to, um, which can sound very mercenary, but that's true. I mean, journalists um, like myself, you know, we're, we're sympathetic individuals, but we're not grief counselors, correct? There's a reason why we're interviewing someone and we need to get to the, the point and the place um, uh, where we feel like we are receiving um, the information that we seek um, in an honest and, and forthright way from 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 an individual, and that was very that could be very difficult with upstairs lounge survivors, where it felt like I didn't want to do any sort of undue damage to them in the process of them reliving the worst minutes of their life. They're talking about like I mean it was most for most of the upstairs lounge survivors, we're talking about fire entering their favorite bar in which essentially most of their best friends are located. And within a span of three minutes, they either escape or don't. They either, um, they either escape by because they're thin enough to pry their way through the window bars, they're, or they followed out uh, a bartender of the upstairs lounge named Buddy Rasmussen out a secret, unmarked back exit, which, which nobody knew existed, uh, but a, a secret fire escape. Um, or, uh, or they didn't escape um, and, and fire claimed their lives. And so um, 
it would be a longer, oftentimes a long process where it would be three or four different interviews before we could get to the actual day of the fire itself. It'd be a lot of dancing around it Mm -hmm. um, up to the point where I would just tell them, I'm so sorry, I I think we're going to have to talk about this. Um, And then there would be a lot of tears um, and an incredible amount. Some upstairs lounge survivors still, because, you know, this this fire occurred at a time when... uh, uh, queer folk were, were incredibly suspicious of psychologists and psychiatrists who called them psychopaths. Um, so many never sought counseling and haven't res- um, And this was also in the early 1970s before anything was known about trauma um, and trauma's effect upon the human mind. Um, and so many of these individuals actually haven't, um, haven't fully processed this yet. Um, many of them will never process it in that way. Um, some were able to, though. Uh, so the upstairs lounge survivor, um, Stephen Duplantis, um, it was probably about a three-year text me- message email game trying to get him on the horn where I thought I would be able to do a phone interview with him about what about that day. Um, and it turned out, um, eventually he, he decided he couldn't do it over the phone. I had to drive out. He lives in Lake Charles. I drove out to Lake Charles specifically for this conversation, and then I sat down at his, it was like a jazz bar uh, near McNeese University. I sat down with him, it was very loud. He let me record him, and it was three hours of him just being motormouth. He could not stop talking about what had happened that day. Um, and in some aspects, that was one of the greatest conversations of my life, um, and most meaningful. One thing I should say, too, is a lot of these con- um, interviews I would have with upstairs lounge survivors um, weren't all sad. Uh, and I think it's important to note, I mean, a lot of them um, had very, when they were recounting memories of the bars and of the bar and their friends and things like that, I mean, they would have really funny stories. These were men who cultivated, uh, I, it took me a long time as a queer person and in my own coming out process to understand that gay, gay folk develop oftentimes really great senses of humor um, as a way to repel the darkness and negativity and prejudice that they uh, that they face, and so and many of it, that was absolutely the case with, with with the upstairs lounge victims in in most situations where they would have incredibly sharp senses of razor sharp senses of humor where I would be um, almost feeling like I wanted to cry at one moment and then in a split second laughing with them laughing with about some piece of gallows humor they offered, something that you would never think someone would make a joke about. It was absolutely their right to make a joke about it if it was a difficult point. But um, incredible, incredible men who who found ways to survive something that um, most of us can't uh, quite imagine. Hmm. And, and I was going to say, too, now you've mentioned about the Catholic Church um, refusing the proper burial rites. So has that ever been fixed? Has that ever, um, what can I say, has the church ever come around to uh, uh, giving proper rights or rectifying that sort of ending that they had? Mm, no, not really. It's still a, a game of uh, a touch and go with them and, and mostly denial. So the archbishop at that in the 1970s was a gentleman named Philip Hannon, who was known for a long span of time as the Pope of New Orleans. New Orleans is an incredibly Catholic city, like at the more than 50% Roman Catholic. Um, and Hannon himself, the Archbishop, was placed on a pedestal 
I mean, there's he wrote books that have been bestsellers. One's called The Archbishop Who Wore Combat Boots because he was um, he was also he had served in World War Two as a chaplain and was by, you know, most stretches of the imagination, a war hero in his own right and an honorable person. Um, who, you know, fought in some cases for um, certain issues involving racial civil rights. Um, so Hannon himself, for years and years, it was described and presumed that Hannon had never said anything about the upstairs lounge fire in, in the weeks and months that happened, um, which is um, in one sense uh, true, not uh, across the board, you know, not, not categorically true. So, um in 1973, several different events that were um, that were tumultuous and disastrous had struck New Orleans. There was a fire at an office building. There was a sniper shooting that had occurred at a Howard Johnson's hotel uh, down the street from City Hall. And in all those instances, um, the Archbishop had stepped forward with um, statements of sympathy for the dead and the bereaved families. And he'd also... Um, He'd, al he'd also taken out, um, usually, uh, either made large statements or taken out very large ads asking for the prayers for the repose of the souls of the victims. Um, and that did not um, happen so publicly for the upstairs lounge fire, actually. Um, it wasn't until decades later, most, it was for several decades, the, the, the story, the, the main line I even I heard when I was researching this is that the archbishop never said anything in 1973 about the upstairs lounge victims. Um, uh, and in one sense that he never said anything like he, he said about, for example, the office, you know, the office tower fire or the Howard Johnson sniper shooting. But I was able to find, weirdly enough, in, in, in this small text column on human rights in like the Archdiocesan newspaper, which was, uh, that's the newspaper for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. And, uh, in, after a page jump, and you can see why no one ever saw this. He, there's like a little scene paragraph where he acknowledges the upstairs lounge fire, states the correct number of the dead, set, uses the word to describe it as a holocaust, which is actually the word holocaust had been utilized by a couple of the gay rights activists that had flown to New Orleans to try to raise awareness about the upstairs lounge tragedy and to try to create it into a certain sort, uh, kind of political moment of recognition for the New Orleans queer community, they used the word Holocaust. So what was interesting about finding that um, this weird bit of apologetic text that Archbishop, in which Archbishop Hannon called for uh, prayers for the repose of the souls of the dead, things like that, is that um, th this was a man who'd followed the news closely. He was aware of the upstairs lounge fire. I mean, St. Louis Cathedral is only a few blocks away, really, from the place where smoke would have been emitting, visible throughout all of the French Quarter. Um, this was a man who knew what was going on, and yet, within the context and the bias of the times period of the time period against queer folk, and also within the, lar the broader realities of uh, the Catholic Church considering um, uh, queer life anything to anything beyond married sex, really, to be. Um, to be mortally sinful, um, that he would, that he, his hands were bound to a certain degree in his ability to express sympathy for dead people um, who perished so terribly. And it was weird. It was decades later. There was a um, there was a Time magazine article, I think, at the 40th anniversary of the upstairs lounge tragedy. So it would have been 2013. And the two of the Times journalists, one of the guys was named Jim Downs. Um, actually asked the Archdiocese of New Orleans uh, if they would like to have any comment 
And they offered a qualified apology, saying, like, if we didn't say back in the 70s anything, you know, we offer regrets now for our lack of sympathy at that point. Um, and everyone was kind of angry that the archdiocese had offered a qualified apology, that you're, you know, most psychologists will say that if your apology starts with if, you know, and, and you're not sorry for something, that's not really an apology. Um, and uh, what, what was weird about it was... That, um, was finding in the midst of my research um, the the very muted, kind of half-assed apology that Hannon that the Archbishop actually had offered in the early 1970s, and to see um, not that it, it had, had that that the apology had been had occurred, and also um, how inadequate it was, to, in some sense, to combat um, the vitriol that many of the upstairs lounge. Um, victims and their families were facing from local priests and parishes who did not want the upstairs lounge victims um, to receive Catholic burials, for example. But you can never go back, right, and, and undo what the Catholic Church did to the upstairs lounge victims in, in, in some ways. Like, you can't, um, you can't go back and, and, and for a family that wanted a Catholic burial um, 40, 50 years later um, and exactly put that to rights. For in some cases, the grieving mother who would have found that moment to be very, to be very important to her, or the grandmother, is gone. That person to, for whom that religious ritual was important. You know, they say funerals are for the living uh, too. It's part of our natural grieving process. That moment cannot be undone or rectified. Um, and when members of, uh, of the Metropolitan Community Church, including Troy Perry, and also several leaders of gay liberation in 1973, had asked um, the Catholic Church for the use of St. Louis Cathedral or one of the cathedrals to hold a public memorial for the victims, the church denied the use of those uh, premises for that purpose. Um, and there's really no way to go back and say, oh, that was a clerical error. Oh, you know, um, near the end of his life, Arch Archbishop Hannon claimed to say that it wasn't he who had denied the St. Louis Cathedral, right, for the for the upstairs lounge memorial. It was a it was one of his assistant priests who thought he knew his mind. So, you know, it's like blaming an underling um, and um and several different instances, um, uh, scholars had tried to pursue uh, Archbishop Philip Hannon up to the moment of his death, which is actually in the early 2010s, to see if he would ever want to ish publicly issue an apology or at least admit that what he did in 1973 was inadequate, um, with the gift of time even. One of those good uh, questions, like, with the gift of time, would you have done anything differently, sir? I mean, it's a softball where you'd be like, yeah, you know, to say yes in those instances. Um, and he declined uh, all interviews, all, all opportunities to make a statement that I think would have nonetheless been incredibly meaningful to the families and children of the upstairs lounge victims, who in some cases um, have had incredibly personal acrimonious relationships with the church um, since the church disrespected their fathers in death. So what do you hope to, that people take away from the book? So when they take the book home and read it, what is it that you want them to um, walk away with? Um, I want them to understand that the upstairs lounge fire was an important event. 
It was the deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history, the deadliest mass killing of homosexuals in U.S. history, actually, until the 2016 massacre at Pulse, that this was an objectively important piece of American history that should be studied and known. Um, I would like for readers to understand the context of the upstairs lounge fire and to understand the context of the 20th century closet as it existed and to understand that the sociological institute of institution of the closet, that widespread conspiracy to turn away from all things non-heterosexual um, w- uh, was a miserable, that that conspiracy um, was a miserable one and that the closet itself was an institution that did not protect families or protect sexual morality, but that in fact it was an institution of great corruption and great violence. So I'd like them, I'd like uh, for that message, I hope to echo through uh, that what happened, that there were essentially three tragedies to the upstairs lounge fire. There was an entire sub-society of, indiv- of men um, who uh, essentially who were forced to live secretly, um, to live as ghosts in their own society. Then those men who were living as ghosts in their own society were murdered in an intentional fire. And then the mem- all memory of that fire was wiped from the slate of history uh, for a span of decades, only recently revived in the 20th century, actually, uh, where people are now talking about the upstairs lounge fire as an event. So, I pe- I, so within all those layers, I hope people understand that uh, the notion of clandestine sexuality and secrecy or, or the, 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 the social push that you sometimes hear from religious right conservatives like, Things would just be better if those if those flamers would just not be so open, you know, holding hands, being so open about their sexuality. Can't they just be secret? Can't they just go slink off into the corner um, and do their shameful act in the dark? Well, um, to those individuals who would say that in the current context, one can say um, no. And the reason one cannot is because when you when you are forced to exist in dark and to exist as in darkness as if you are a member of the criminal element, um, you cease to be a citizen and all me- all measures of protection, secular and religious offered to American citizens under the ordinary circumstances no longer apply to you. Um, and you will be not denied those dignities, not just in life, but in death. Um, so I hope they understand that. And then the last thing I hope people understand is the phenomenon of denial um, and how powerful it is. Uh, the upstairs lounge fire was an event that an entire city, an entire culture was able to deny for decades. It's incredible. They were able to silence the reality of, of a burning building and all of its screaming voices. Um, that should be an alarming kind of marker, I think, for people to understand what within human nature we are able to erase uh, and the consequences of that. Um, because, you know, even if it seems like, oh, well, it was just another group's sad event that was erased, right? I'm not, I'm not LGBT, so I shouldn't worry about the LGBT folks' silenced event. Well, look, I mean, at, at any point, in a, any given point in a society, Whatever way you identify might place yourself as you might place yourself as the odd person out, right? Someone might draw, draw a circle and you might not fall within it. And in that case, you can become viable, um, not viable. You can become vulnerable um, to being erased in such a way. And, and the capacity for denial in, in American society 
um, is profound. And I think, I think we see that <laughs> in our contemporary social context as well, um, with what people are willing to put up with so long as they're allowed to live some semblance of their normal routine. Um, in order to do that, they will pretend not to see a great, uh, a great number of things. You know, uh, Rob is John. Um, you know, one thing I was really interested in, and, uh, and mainly this is because it's something that I discovered in, in researching my book, was sort of the uh, racial dynamics. Um, you know, my uh, dodging burning stuff in the 1940s or 1970s, but there's all this sort of complex sort of uh, racial dynamic between, you know, the uh, black gay culture, the white gay culture, the black straight culture. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, uh, sure. how that intersects with this um, I mean, yeah. tragedy? Yeah, I mean, that adds, an, that adds an elevated number level of complexity to the Upstairs Lounge tragedy. And this was something I actually started delving into and finding out more about after the book was published. But so um, in New Orleans in the 1970s, there was street slang for... Uh, gay queer, sorry, black gay queer folk and white gay queer folk. Um, the, the street slang was dinge and snow. A black gay man was considered dinge, um, or dark or dusty. And snow was the, you know, re reference to white purity, that kind of thing. And dinge and snow culture was quite profound in a southern city like New Orleans, where, um, pretty much every gay bar was racially segregated. So long as you were, um, black, dark skin showing as African American at that point. There were there were very few bars where a black gay man could walk in uh, and get a drink if there were white customers around as well, um, except the upstairs lounge. The upstairs lounge was a, a wide except offered a, a wide exception to that, where it was one of the few gay bars where there were black gay um, regulars drinking side-by-side side, white gay regulars and dating each other and falling in love with each other, which at that time was considered scandalous. Dating across race, even if you were, uh, even if you were gay, um, was very controversial in New Orleans, even at that point. And there's even a more complex racial dynamic that I'm not going to delve too, in, too far into, but in New Orleans, the phenomenon of Creole culture and the phenomenon of light skin blackness and passing or not passing as white etc., is this whole other layer um, that get, gets added on top of that. And so um, there, were, uh, there was a black gay victim of the upstairs lounge fire, a gentleman named Reginald Adams, um, who had met and fallen in love with a then a person who was um, uh, experimenting with various genders at that point. The word transgender didn't exist, although she, this person, would now identify as transgender, but that word wasn't even in common parlance, and she didn't know it at that time period. But so a person who came to be known as a woman named Regina Adams was um, met and dated Reginald Adams at the upstairs lounge. So that was a couple that was bridging all sorts of divides at that point, racial and gender. I mean, it was like as radical as you mm -hmm. could get in New Orleans society. Yeah. And Regina had actually, um, uh, she had the, the brazenness and the courage to actually, because she was so proud of Reggie, Reginald Adams, her boyfriend, that she loved showing him off at establishments where black gay men ordinarily weren't allowed uh, to be invited inside. So she drank, actually, it was uh, a few weeks prior to the upstairs lounge fire. She went and got Reggie Adams into the cafe, a bar called, it was the oldest gay bar in New Orleans, called Cafe Lafitte in Exile. 
I mean, this is like the Tony bar, gay bar of New Orleans. This is where like Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams um, drink. This is where like gay men wearing fur coats would sometimes drink. Of course, they'd like throw the fur coats down on the floor to help pad their knees at various points. Sorry, I don't want to make you guys blush. But like, so like, so, like, so Reggie Adams and Regina drank there. Um, the reason that this adds complexity to it is because after the upstairs lounge fire occurred, one of the um, loudest voices for silencing any talk of the tragedy were white gay bar owners who wanted um, who wanted their clientele to return back to gay bars in the French Quarter and who wanted to allow gay queer folk in New Orleans to have their secret lives returned to normal. And one of the one of the one of the outspoken individuals who um, wanted all talk of the upstairs lounge fire to, to sort of uh, dissipate was one of the, the owner of Cafe Lafitte in Exile at that point, a guy named Tommy Hopkins, um, who, and it's a, it's a viable question to ask whether he was irked by the fact that the racial policies in his own bar had been violated several weeks prior because of what was going on at that upstairs lounge bar, where it was considered, um, it was considered wild to have, uh, to have black gay men Drinking side by side, white gay men, um, just down the street, um, and so um, it, I, I'm sure, I, I'm certain, and I haven't, I can't, I can't validate this, but beyond my own reportorial understanding and a conclusion I draw based on my research, that the racial policy of the upstairs lounge, the fact that they allowed black gay patrons, did affect um, the way that the gay, the gay community responded and hushed. The upstairs lounge tragedy after it occurred, they were already a bit annoyed by that bar, and then that bar that was practicing something that a lot of people didn't agree with burned to the mm. ground, and some folk thought good riddance. Um, mm. but, and it's tough that there was actually a black gay bar too that was dead, so isolated were the racism in, in the local gay community that there was a black gay bar down the street from the upstairs lounge located on a second story, accessed by a single staircase, same, like, does this sound familiar, called the Safari Lounge. And the Safari Lounge actually, um, it was uh, the week after the upstairs lounge burned to the ground, the Safari Lounge was closed surreptitiously, it almost as like um, by, uh, by fire inspectors that were looking to do something to prove that they had make, made uh, Iberville Street and the French Quarter safer. And uh, if, if you were looking for a viable mark or someplace to some place to close where individuals wouldn't um, raise their voices too loudly. A black gay bar was the perfect spot um, because the black gay was, you know, not just um, under pressure from uh, stigma from the white gay community. Um, they were also there was also stigma from uh, black gay church culture. Um, so a black gay bar, in essence, was one of the most vulnerable places after the upstairs lounge fire occurred, and it was actually the only gay bar that closed in the quarter um, in the span of time that happened afterwards as a direct result of the clampdown um, on gay establishments for fire code violations and all sorts of things like that um, in the weeks that followed. So it was weird. it's weird to think about this, but my research when I was delving into this, I was shocked to find that a, one, a fire at a gay bar on one street resulted in the permanent closure of two gay establishments and the erase, permanent erasure of two gay bar cultures. Mm -hmm. And that has everything to do with racial dynamics, um, yeah. which were true not just of New Orleans, too. You could go throughout the South. Actually, 
And words like dinge and snow and the bias about interracial gay dating, um, you could even find in places like New York City. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement um, had not yet found common cause or parody on, in a lot of different aspects in the early 1970s. Well, so now um, let's give the listeners a place that they can reach you. Um, you have a website out yeah, there? Yeah, I'm at rwfieseler.com. That's spelled F-I-E-S-E-L-E-R. Or you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at wordbobby, W-O-R-D-B-O-B-B-Y. And that's for people who can't spell my German name, and I understand why they can't. There's a lot of ease, and some people can't get my website right. Um so sometimes it's just easier to go on Twitter or Instagram to go to Word Bobby, and that's where you can find me. Fantastic. Now, we're going to have that up on our website, as well as your book, Tinderbox. Robert Fiesler, thank you for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. This was great. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.